Welcome to Perfectly Imperfect, a podcast on mental health for folks of color. I'm your host, John Zell Anderson, licensed professional counselor. I'm the owner of Panoramic Counseling, where I specialize in treating teens and young adults in Richmond, Virginia, and throughout the Commonwealth of Virginia through online counseling. Let's get into the show. This episode is part of a summer book club that I'm hosting on this podcast. In efforts to read and write more on topics related to race and injustice, I decided to log out of my Instagram account for the summer, and I'm instead focusing my time and energy here. Thanks for joining me on this journey. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining me for part three of this book review on How the Word is Passed by Clint Smith. Today, I'm going to talk about the chapter on Angola Prison, which is also known as the Louisiana State Penitentiary. Through reading this chapter, I learned how closely correlated the institution of slavery is with our current system of mass incarceration in the United States. So I'm going to start off with some of the history behind mass incarceration given at the beginning of the chapter. So here's a quote. Norris Henderson had successfully led a coalition of incarcerated people, formerly incarcerated people, and their allies to end Louisiana's practice of non-unanimous jury decisions via a ballot measure that had amended the state constitution. Up until that point, Louisiana was one of only two states in the entire country, Oregon being the other in which someone could be convicted of a felony without the jury coming to a unanimous decision. In his book, Thomas Alio describes how the rationale for such a policy is not simply an innocent difference in respect of state constitutions, but grounded in a history of racism. The policy stemming from post-Reconstruction white supremacy was meant to funnel black people into the convict leasing system, replacing, in part, the labor force lost as a result of emancipation. The policy also had the effect of suffocating the political and judicial power of black people in Louisiana. Following the Civil War, white Democrats across the South sought to subvert the rights of newly freed slaves by imposing a new system of control, convict leasing. The 13th Amendment barred involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for a crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted. The convict leasing system allowed black people to be imprisoned for years under spurious charges and be rented to companies. These people and institution whose businesses had been built on the labor of enslaved people experienced a vacuum in the years following abolition. But with convict leasing, imprisoned black men could now be legally forced to provide that labor for their railroads, their plantations, and their businesses. Many southern states passed so-called pig laws. In 1876, for example, the state of Mississippi established the theft of any property worth $10 or more and any livestock worth a dollar or more as grand larceny and thus subject to a sentence as high as five years. Southerners constantly manipulated laws to drive convictions. Pig laws did create more convicts, and those convicts were overwhelmingly black and overwhelmingly leased. 
C. Harrison Parker wrote of the men sentenced to convict leasing at Angola that it would be more humane to punish with death all prisoners sentenced to a longer period than six years, since the average prisoner sentenced to convict leasing would not live more than six years anyway. As one man told the National Conference of Charities and Correction in 1883, before the war, we owned the Negroes. If a man had a good Negro, he could afford to take care of him. If he was sick, get a doctor. He might even put gold plugs in his teeth. But these convicts, we don't own them. One dies, get another. In Louisiana, in order to ensure there were more convictions and thus more prisoners available for labor, in 1880, the state legislature shifted the requirement for juries from unanimous to non-unanimous. This way, courts would allow a few black people to serve on the jury in accordance with their new rights as freed persons, but by requiring only nine of the twelve jurors to convict someone of a crime, they effectively subverted any political power black people or those sympathetic to them might otherwise have had." End quote. And so I share this longer passage to give some context as to how this legacy of mass incarceration and the disenfranchisement of black and brown people continues to this day in our criminal justice system. Throughout this chapter, the author, uh, Clint Smith, is going to be going on a tour of the Angola prison. Norris Henderson is going to be Uh, a person who is on the tour with him, and you're going to kind of hear some of his insights as he was once imprisoned at Angola. So let's start with the gift shop. Now, mind you, this is an active penitentiary in Louisiana, but they do, they have a museum and tours and all of this stuff, which is pretty surreal if you ask me. But here's a quote. As I walked around the relatively small room, there were various t-shirts touting the Angola Prison Rodeo, a biannual event that takes place every Sunday in October and over the course of one weekend in April. There were caps that read simply, Angola State Pen. There were ashtrays built from license plates stacked up on one another. Angola is where every license plate in the state of Louisiana is made. I thought about the cruel irony of people so restricted in their own movements creating something that facilitated mobility for so many others. There were shot glasses, sunglasses, and t-shirts with the prison's name emblazoned across their breasts. But what stood out most in the gift shop, sitting on a shelf at the far end of the store, was a white mug with the silhouette of a guard sitting in a watchtower surrounded by fencing. Above the picture it said, Angola and beneath the picture it read, A Gated Community. I looked around the gift shop once more and wondered whom it was attempting to serve. Who saw the largest maximum security prison in the country as some sort of tourist destination? After I left the gift shop, I found a plaque inside the museum noting that the goal of the Angola Museum is to, quote, establish and preserve Angola's past and to educate all who visit about the role the sprawling prison farm has played in our state's history. 
but as I walked from room to room of the museum, it became clear that the institution was interested only in preserving a history that created clear, misguided demarcations between criminals and those who watch over them, end quote. And to be honest with the listeners, this particular episode was probably the hardest so far in the summer book club for me to record. I'm actually recording it the day before it goes live, which is not typical for me, because when I read this chapter, it was so emotionally charged for me that I almost avoided revisiting it because what I read and what I you know, saw just really bothered me on a very deep level. But that's the point of this podcast, right? Is to push myself to explore these things, but also to share it with other people. So as Clint continues on with his tour through this prison, there becomes a theme of how the tour is very slanted in its history. And you'll see how that plays out. So quote, my initial sense of optimism began to fade away as Roger, the tour guide, continued. He went on to say that this had been a horrible prison, but quickly pivoted to discuss the positive things the prison was now doing to make life better for the people held captive there, including provided accredited college courses and degrees from the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. While it was encouraging to hear about the progress the prison had made, The timeline Roger provided seemed, at best, abbreviated, if not willfully misleading. Roger moved from discussing the indigenous communities and French exploration of the 17th and early 18th centuries straight to post-Civil War America, skipping the period in which Angola existed as a plantation worked by enslaved black people. He mentioned convict leasing without explaining that it was an explicit tool of economic and racial subjugation in which men were starved, beaten, and housed in former slave quarters. He failed to mention that the land upon which Angola is built had once been the plantation of Isaac Franklin, a man whose business, Franklin and Armfield, became one of the largest slave trading firms in the United States. The plantation produced 3,100 bales of cotton a year, a yield higher than most other plantations in the South. He failed to mention that Samuel Lawrence James, who purchased the plantation from Franklin's widow, was a former major in the Confederate Army. James agreed to a 21-year lease with the state to purchase access to all of the state's prisoner as long as he was able to keep all of the profits. James subsequently subcontracted the prisoners to labor camps where, as Roger had told us, they worked on levees and railroads in horrific conditions. A prisoner under James's lease had a greater chance of dying than an enslaved person did. End quote. I don't believe I shared this highlight earlier in the book, but the author, Clint Smith, is from New Orleans. So if you know anything about New Orleans, there are lots of infrastructure built to prevent catastrophic flooding and stuff like that. What I didn't know before reading this book is that those things were built by slave labor. And so in this past quote here, you heard how the work of building those levees was incredibly dangerous. And as you've heard from the previous quotes I've shared, 
they didn't really think of these least convicts as humans. They were more so a machine that could do a job, and if one of these machines broke, i.e. died or got very sick, you just swap it out for another one. That's the value of human life that we've seen throughout the institution of slavery and um, post-emancipation. The thing that really started to dig at me as I read this chapter is not only the inhumane conditions that the prisoners throughout Angola prison have had to go through, but there's one instance here where the prisoners are actually being commissioned to build the deathbed for the death penalty prisoners. So I'm going to share that story here. Quote, The state of Louisiana transitioned from the electric chair to lethal injection in 1991. The prison needed a bed on which to lay the condemned. Meanwhile, in the welding shop of the prison, some of the men were handed a new assignment, though they did not know what for. One of the guys, one of the clerks, happened to see the whole blueprint laying on the drafting table, Norris said, recounting the event, and went back out to the shop and said, Bruh, y'all know what you're building? They're like, what? You're building the damn deathbed. Instead of purchasing a bed, Norris said, the Department of Corrections found it cheaper to direct the prisoners in the machine and welding shops to build it, with each part of the bed assembled separately. Norris paused, shaking his head at the memory. One of the guys on the welding crew, his brother was on death row. Upon realizing what they were building, Norris said, the men refused to continue, and as a result, they were locked inside their cells. The prison, Norris said, was essentially at a standstill for three days. And there's a footnote here. So it says, the incident was reported by the Associated Press in July 1991. A prison official acknowledged to the press that there were some inmates who refused their job assignment, but said he had no comment on what the assignment was. Later, said Norris, a warden at Angola took the unusual step of apologizing to the prisoners for the incident. The tour of this prison was incredibly curated and slanted, so here's another example. Quote, It felt incredibly important to hear directly from people incarcerated in Angola, but having an official employed by the prison present us with seemingly pre-selected speakers lent the impression that the men were giving us presentations they had given on many other occasions to many other visitors. I imagine there was little chance that these men would say anything unfavorable about the prison in front of a prison representative. Such dissent could lead to retribution. There is a long precedent for that. As such, there will always be a limit to the amount of candor an incarcerated person can provide in such a space. End quote. So basically on this tour, they allow people touring the prison to speak with some of the prisoners who are currently there, but it was very apparent to the author that these were canned responses that they were giving, because when you're in prison, you don't have rights, so there's nothing really protecting you from retribution if you say something uh, controversial. The thing that I love about this chapter is that Clint Smith was very bold during his tour of the Angola prison, and he asked the tough questions. So I'm going to give you snippets of that conversation. Quote, 
I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the prison's relationship to slavery. The tour guide responded, this was a, this, he stumbled over his words as he attempted to finish his thought. They house slaves on this land, and I can't change that. Our history is our history, and I can't change that. Rogers' I can't change that seemed to provide the pretense of acknowledgement while creating distance from personal culpability. It was reminiscent of a refrain laced throughout our country's conversations about the history of racism. I thought about all of the times growing up when I had sat in class and heard a white classmate say, well, my ancestors didn't have slaves, or heard a political commentator on television say, why are we still talking about slavery? People need to get over it. Or a politician say, we can't wallow in the past. It's time to focus on the future. When I hear these deflections, I think of all the ways this country attempts to smother conversations about how its past has shaped its present. How slavery is made to sound as if it happened in a prehistoric age instead of only a few generations ago. If in Germany today there were a prison built on top of a former concentration camp and that prison disproportionately incarcerated Jewish people, it would rightly provoke outrage throughout the world. I imagine there would be international summits on closing such an egregious institution. And yet, in the United States, such collective outrage at this plantation turned prison is relatively muted. End quote. Clint Smith asked a difficult question. He basically asked the tour guide to address the connection between Angola prison and the institution of slavery. But as you see, he sidestepped it and said, well, I can't change the past, right? And so then I was so impressed because Clint Smith did not let up. He asked another bold follow-up question. So I'm going to share that with you now. Quote, I still wasn't satisfied with the answer Roger had provided. So after he responded to a question from someone else in the group by discussing the positive programming the prison was doing, I raised my hand again. On that note, I began again, you're showing us lots and talking a lot about some of the stuff that you all do really well, which is really wonderful to see. I'm curious about what things you think you could be doing better. Roger talked about how the prison had no control over what happened in the state legislature and that it needed that body to pass certain laws in order for them to help prisoners more effectively. He talked about the extremely low recidivism rate for people convicted of murder, but reminded us that without change in sentencing laws, Angola could not simply release its prisoners. I was astonished by the lack of institutional contrition the refusal to admit what was right in front of us. I have no way of knowing Roger's intentions, but it was evident that he had little interest in talking about the role slavery had played in shaping Angola, which in its early days had a big house of the old southern plantation style on the grounds in which the person responsible for all of the people held there, the warden, lived with his family. I brought up my concerns with Norris. He looked at me and said, sometimes people want to let dead dogs lie. But I didn't want that. 
I wanted the prison to create a sign at the entrance naming that it had been a plantation. I wanted markers erected in the places where incarcerated people had died and for the first and last sentence of every tour to begin with the word slavery. I wanted Angola, where 71% of the people are serving life sentences and three-quarters of the population is black, to not pretend as if that was a coincidence. What I wanted more than anything was for this prison to not be here, holding these people on this land with this history. It all felt so profoundly irredeemable, end quote. You won't be able to tell because this podcast episode is edited, but I just had to take a couple of minutes to do some deep breathing to ground myself and to calm myself down because obviously this material is very difficult to process. But to continue on with the discussion, the author takes his experiences from this tour and kind of provides more context for the current mass incarceration crisis that our nation has. So, quote, at the time of our visit, the state of Louisiana had 69 people on death row, meaning individuals who have been sentenced to death for crimes they have been convicted of. The average person remains on death row for more than a decade as they appeal their sentence or wait to be executed. Two-thirds of the people on death row in Louisiana are black. An estimated one out of every 25 people who are sentenced to death in the United States is innocent. And so then the author goes into numerous examples of how incarceration in the United States is literally cruel and unusual punishment. And one of the things that really baffles me about the tour at Angola Prison is that not only are you touring like a museum on the prison grounds, but you're also like going through death row, seeing people that are currently incarcerated on death row. They show you the the place where they do lethal injections, and it's very eerie, but I'm sharing this material because I don't think a lot of us think deeply into what people in prisons are dealing with, aside from the fact that if they've been convicted of crimes or whatever, they're still humans and they don't deserve the conditions and treatment that they currently get. But I'm going to share this to just give you some context. So, quote, in 2013, three men on death row sued Angola for appalling and extreme conditions caused by extreme heat. Their attorneys asserted that the conditions of the unit violated the cruel and unusual punishment clause of the Eighth Amendment. The lawsuit claimed that during the summer of 2011, the heat index on death row at times reached 195 degrees Fahrenheit. For a staggering 85 days between May and August 2012, the heat index rose above 126 degrees. Death row units did not have any air conditioning systems, only fans. And according to the lawsuit, during the summer, the bars of the cells are hot to the touch and the cinder block walls release additional heat. It also claimed that the people housed on death row often chose to sleep on the concrete floor of their cells because the floor is slightly cooler than their beds. 
After three years, a federal judge ruled that the prison was in violation of the Eighth Amendment once the heat index surpassed 88 degrees, and the judge required remediation measures to address the heat, though the prison was not forced to install air conditioning units. Later, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit overturned the requirement to keep the heat index of death row unit below the 88-degree maximum the plaintiffs have urged. In 2016, Jimmy LeBlanc, Secretary of the State's Department of Public Safety and Corrections, claimed that providing air conditioning for the people on death row would open a, quote, Pandora's box, potentially forcing the state to provide air conditioning to many other prisoners, end quote. I'm not being subtle in my frustration with this information as I process it because there is an attitude about incarceration in the United States that they shouldn't have amenities that people who are free have, but there are basic human rights. 196 degrees Fahrenheit is, I mean, think about like all of the children that we've heard of dying in cars because their parents forget them in the backseat. Like this is those types of conditions, but they're adults. I really don't even have the words to say, but this chapter um, has done a great job at linking the institution of slavery with our current system of mass incarceration. And if it hasn't been obvious through previous episodes that I've done on this podcast, both current, like our mass incarceration in the United States and our law enforcement system are incredibly intertwined with the hundreds of years of slavery in this country. But if we look at the history and we look at how things unfolded, everything really goes back to this initial injustice of making a class of people seemingly inferior, less than human. And then the transition into emancipation has tried its best to hold on to the slave enterprise. And so we've got a lot of work to do. We've got a lot of work to do. So I'm going to take one more deep breath. I'm going to continue in the next episode with the next chapter in Clint Smith's How the Word Has Passed. Uh, The next chapter is going to talk about the Blanford Cemetery. So I'm looking forward to reading that and to share some of the insights that I've gotten from it. But until the next time, thank you for listening and take care. Anchor is everything you need to make a podcast. And best of all, it's free. They offer creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor also distributes your podcast so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts, and many more. Did I mention that you can make money from your podcast no matter the size of your following? Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. If you enjoyed this episode, you can support this podcast by buying me a coffee. The link is in this episode's show notes. Thanks in advance.